just when you thought we might get through this Minnesota winter without a scratch. It rears its ugly head and brings along some serious below zero temperatures. But that's okay, because things in the studio, well, they're as toasty as ever, and we can still enjoy some artwork that reminds us of warmer times past and warmer times to come. And I think that's just what we'll do today, as I discuss my moonlit twilight landscapes I call nocturnes. We'll do so in four, three, two. Hello, art enthusiasts and art lovers. Welcome to episode 20 of Art Wonderful. Can you believe it? We've made it this far. The podcast where art is a religion. I'm your host, Nicholas Harper. I'm broadcasting from my art studio deep within the Rogue Buddha Gallery. That's here in the heart of the Northeast Arts District in Sub-Zero, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Hey, Siberia, you ain't got nothing on us. I don't know if that's a good thing. But I want to thank you for joining me as we explore everything the arts has to offer. It's the mission of this podcast to spread the gospel of the arts, their essential value to our everyday lives, and to offer a deep dive exploration into this most mysterious of subjects. You can hear more about myself, the Rogue Buddha Gallery, this podcast, and those we have on the show by visiting us online at roguebuddha.com. Click podcast from the menu. If by chance you follow me on Instagram or are a regular to this podcast, then you'll know that I have a body of landscapes currently on exhibit at Gallery 360 in South Minneapolis. This show opened the first week of January and is on display through February 21st, 2021. Now, I've had a few five-foot shows that included my landscapes, but this is the first solo show of landscapes that I've had at Gallery 360. In fact, it's one of only a handful of times I've really exhibited this body of work, including once at the Rogue Buddha Gallery and a solo exhibit at the Edina Art Center. That's because, well, it's a relatively new body of work for me, dating back only about five years now. I thought today, as we're nearing the end of my exhibit, but while there's still time for you all to make a venture, either in real life or via the interweb to Gallery 360, I would chit-chat a bit about this body of work inspirations, and what these landscapes are really all about. As an aside, I had a wonderful conversation with Gallery 360 owner Mary Beck last summer. You can hear that conversation right here on Art Wonderful in episode 11. So if you haven't already, I highly recommend you check it out. But now, on to the artist talk. Like many a youth in my time, I was raised on an afternoon show learning about happy trees and their friends, the happy clouds. I am, of course, talking about the one and the only Bob Ross. That's right, the painter and television host who, every afternoon in a mere 30 minutes, taught child and adult alike how to paint various landscapes, always forgiving of mistakes, and always encouraging that anyone could become an artist like himself. The only thing more signature than his paintings was, of course, his afro, which I came to learn was the result of not having money at one time, not enough, anyways, to get a haircut. 
Whether that story is true or not, it doesn't really matter, as it just blends into the mystique of the man and his art, and of course his afro. Yes, so every day after school, I would come home and plop myself in front of the television. I sat on the floor and had a little stool in front of me. As I settled into watching Electric Company and Mr. Rogers, my mom would make me a tuna fish sandwich with two, maybe three Oreo cookies and a glass of milk. All of this in preparation for the real entertainment to come, the half hour with Bob Ross. Between his voice and the various sounds of his brush on palette, canvas, and to shut off liquids against his easel, I was hypnotized and at awe of what he could do on canvas in such a small amount of time. In particular, I was most drawn to those paintings by Bob that had a mystical aura to them, as he attempted to capture the mystery that is the evening. Even as a small child, I was beginning to develop a love for all things nocturnal. This was my first real exposure to landscape painting, and one that would lurk somewhere deep in the recess of my subconscious for nearly four decades. That is, with a little intercession by way of Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light in my mid-twenties. I'm not going to spend too much time on Tom at the moment, as this will be the topic of an episode all on its own, hopefully in the near future. Suffice it to say, I was a master highlighter and apprentice to Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light, in my mid-twenties. In fact, part of my time with Tom overlapped part of the first couple years of owning the Rogue Buddha Gallery. Now, if you're not familiar with Thomas Kincaid, picture storybook cottages nestled into pristine and idealized wooded or mountainous landscapes, while picturesque sunsets and sunrises adorn the skyscape. All the while, every flower within sight is in full bloom, and every light in the house is on and welcoming. Ring a bell? It doesn't get a whole lot more picturesque than this. Well, like I said, I'm not going to get into my time with Tom in this episode, but I will say that he had an influence on me. And while his landscapes didn't necessarily speak to me myself aesthetically, they did light a bit of a spark to want to paint landscapes at some point myself. And his dedication to beauty, well, that wasn't lost on me either. But that spark would still need more time to germinate. But my childhood influences didn't stop with Bob Ross, along with the isolation that comes with being a bit of a nerd and having plenty of time to wander the local woods by myself, there were a couple other major influences from my youth that would inform my landscapes of today in a fairly big way. That's right, this might come to some as a surprise, but as a child, and through middle school, and some might even say into high school, I was a bit of a nerd. Not so much Urkel, but more along the lines of Alex P. Keaton. Sadly, this was before being an outcast or a nerd was cool. Kinda similar to how back in my day, when all of my clothes were from the Sally store, that's the Salvation Army, it just wasn't cool, and that helped set me apart. But now today, nothing could be hipper than hitting the bins and finding that gem at Unique. But that's neither here nor there. My point is, I was a bit of a nerd and spent a lot of time at the library, delving into math and science books, which inevitably brought me to topics such as theoretical physics and space exploration. 
It was in learning about these that I found Omni Magazine, a magazine dedicated to all things, well, pretty cool if you ask me, from the paranormal to extraterrestrial to theoretical science and everything in between, from the science behind the magic that is the Stradivarius cello to Chupacabra and the Yeti, from lucid dreaming and soul travel to hypnotism and artificial intelligence. Frankly, I was hooked. And as a side note, this was the beginning of a very long, while not lucrative or popular career as an unapologetic conspiracy theorist, something I'm proud to say I still am, even as we're getting a bad rap these days by almost everyone. But again, that's for another episode. Ah, but if only this magazine, Omni, had a soundtrack. Oh wait, it did. Quite serendipitously at this time, I think I was in 7th grade or so, I found a radio program that would come on air every Sunday night from around 11pm to midnight. It was called Hearts of Space. The show's host had the perfect voice for such a program. His low timbre and calm cadence added a soothing if not mysterious tone to the show which featured ambient and as they called it, quote-unquote space-creating music. Atmospheric drones and drawn-out whole notes conjured up vistas of the open plains extending into the vast distance, melancholic cellos blending with deep electronic chords as sad piano notes painted a picture of the abyss that is deep space and the nebula and galaxies that populate its unfathomable size. Every Sunday I would sink into my bed under a lone light to listen to the hearts of space while reading my Omni magazine. To paint this picture a little more perfectly, on one wall of my room hung numerous posters of planets and galaxies, while the wall alongside my bed was adorned with a massive mural of the space shuttle Columbia drifting high above the Earth. <clears throat> Nerd. Music's been a large catalyst for both my landscape art and figurative pieces as well. Moving forward in time from when I had a mural of space shuttle on my wall, <clears throat> nerd, to venturing to New York City for the first time and wandering into a music shop where again, most serendipitously, I found for the first time bands like Fortet and Aphex Twin, and then subsequently back home finding stations like Soma FM on iTunes and genres like ClickHop, I was again mesmerized by ambient soundscapes and the vastness that they conjured in my mind. It was early in the days of the Rogue Buddha that I began to experiment with electronic music myself. The originators of the 24-hour film festival here in Minneapolis utilized the gallery as the venue to meet up and to showcase the films, which were, as the name suggests, all made within a 24-hour period. These guys turned me on to groups like Boards of Canada and Farben, and my lexicon for ethereal drones expanded. I was also hanging out with a good friend of mine, Jonathan Nelson, who had a radio show on Radio K, the U of M's college station, called Some Assembly Required. It featured mashups and deconstructed and reconstructed audio files to create new and experimental creations. Not having any real recording equipment myself, I did have access to the movie editing software Final Cut Pro, as I also partook in the 24-hour film festival. I used its auditory tracks to cut and splice various parts from other songs to create my own. These, thank God, never saw the light of day. 
Over the years, as I got and learned more programs, I began to experiment more with electronic music, which culminated in my first full song, which I did release as a soundtrack to a time-lapse of my making a painting called Belladonna. This was about eight years ago. With the advent of Instagram, I began to once again play around with making music, this time as little 15 to 30 second soundscapes set to visuals in which I distorted various figurative paintings of mine. I believe those are still on my page somewhere. But it was in making those little snippets that once again, I got the bug to make something a bit more substantial by way of music. And a three album set was concocted in my brainsicle, an auditory triptych, if you will, called Paint Sounds each song being inspired by one of my paintings. To date, only one of those albums has been completed as a demo and was made available a few years ago at Artaworld. I'm currently working on remastering the album with the hopes of officially releasing it this winter, followed by the other two, which are in various stages of completion later this year. But more about that project in another episode. Now, oddly enough, while I was making music inspired by my various darker-natured figurative pieces, the music began to revive in me those feelings and emotions I had as a child, reading Omni Magazine under a single light, while my mind journeyed to the far reaches of Earth and space. It began to conjure up memories from being on road trips, and those moments of reverie that last only a fleeting time. One memory in particular was with my mom, one of my sisters, and my niece Missy. I think I was about 11 or 12, and we were driving from Minneapolis to Red Wing, about an hour drive. We were going to some store that was famous for their down comforters, pillows, and the like. As we drove down, the dusk sky clouded over, and a cold fall mist shrouded the scenery of fields and bluffs, as if some sort of ethereal veil. While everything on the outside seemed dismal and gray as the light faded into evening, the inside of the car was warm and comforting. My eyes fixated on the gloom that was outside, and I found myself being lost in its somber and melancholic beauty. Much of my life has been defined by moments like that, transitory experiences shrouded by mesmerizing landscapes. Driving home from Paisley Park as the sun was just about to rise, and being completely encapsulated by fog, lost in fields of corn. Coming over the peak which opened up to the majestic canyons and plains of the Badlands, after hours of flat driving, sitting on the shores of the ocean as the sun evaporates, being hypnotized by a sun that exists nowhere else like it does in the canyons of New Mexico, its light radiating off of red and orange rock, and countless hours watching the moon in all of its various mystical and mysterious phases dance across the night sky and play partner with clouds and various earthly variations from lakes to trees, all of them captivating and hypnotic. These are moments that I have always cherished in life and often bring to the forefront of my mind, reliving and feeling the emotions again, as though I'm right back there in real time at this very moment. One vista that just always struck me was a view from the Ford Bridge in St. Paul and looking back down the river towards Minneapolis and the Lake Street Bridge at night. I first came to know this view as a distance runner in my 20s, as it marked the halfway point on my 10-mile runs around the river road, 
As I ran mostly in the evenings, I came to look forward to peering into the black void that was the Mississippi River and the few lights that dotted its banks and the bridge that sat miles off in the distance. This vista would again haunt me years later as I began to bicycle more often and once again found this very spot to be the midpoint in my 30-mile bike rides from Gallery to Ford Bridge and back again. And again, I would stop in the middle of the bridge and just peer off in the darkness, letting my mind evaporate into the night sky. It was on one of these rides about seven years ago that I first thought about painting this vista, which at the time seemed odd, as it would be so completely different from the work that I made and was known for, mostly magical realistic portraits. I had, by this time, began to play with darkness in my portraits more and more in recent years. But something about this vista was drawing me even further down this path of exploring darkness, especially that of night. It was then that the final puzzle piece came to me and tipped my inspiration over the cliff of no return and that I knew I would start to make landscapes. The final inspirational nod came by one Claude Debussy. I'd been driving in my car late one night and listening to the classical music channel. The host of the show introduced the next piece of music, The Sunken Cathedral by Debussy. The host made a point of letting us know that in this piece of music, he had been intrigued with the notion of playing the note so delicately that the transition between one note and the other would vanish, that each note would melt into the next, forming a sort of flowing landscape. It was very much about building a mood and emotion, and can be described as musical impressionism. As the prelude began, my mind instantly transported to the middle of that fort bridge and the view of the river in the deep of night. I felt as though I knew exactly what W.C. was talking about, but through a visual lens. It was at that moment that I was determined to paint that vista and to apply W.C.'s approach visually, to see just how subtle I could make the transitions of light and paint, which depict sky, water, and trees, so as to have any sort of demarcations or defining edges vanish altogether. Rather than capturing the actual view, I wanted to capture the emotion of that view, the memory of it and its imprint that dwells somewhere in the back recesses of my mind, but always is accessible and lurking just below the surface of my consciousness. And so I sat at the easel and began painting, out of memory, the view of the Lake Street Bridge from the vantage point of the Ford Bridge, with only a few dots of light breaking the surface of richly layered and pristinely glazed tones, hoping not to paint a record of what I saw, but an impression of what I felt. As I painted that first landscape, I focused much more on the emotion of what I was trying to concoct rather than the details or being concerned with any sort of accuracy. And this would be the approach that I would bring and have brought to most landscape paintings that I've done since. I attempt to draw on emotive imprints from places both real and imagined, whose memory when conjured is felt as much as it is remembered in any literal sense. And by using a palette of rich colors heavy with black, glazing, and a minimalist approach, I aim to present 
what I hope to be seductively moody tableaus cast a mystical light, enshrouded in melancholic shadow. My end goal is to present somber landscapes or nocturnes, whose minimalism and subtle tones create vast spaces where the viewer's mind can go to and escape and explore, and by delving into the painting in such a contemplative state will really allow the viewer to enter their own mind, their own memories, and hopefully have some sort of connection between self and nature, one that pervades time and distance, or even reality. For me, I liken this connection to a holy or sacred experience, finding nature to be the best of all cathedrals, and a place where prayer and communion with God, if you will, can take place quite intuitively with little to no pretense. These days, I spend a lot of time walking and hiking in various state parks throughout Minnesota. I usually arrive with just about 30 minutes left before official sunset. This allows me the ability to be caught in the various stages of dusk and twilight, and then to meander alone in the dark, many times my path and view lit by a silvery moon. My love of times like this and of nature itself comes from an inherent distrust of technology and an aversion to much of what modernity elevates as quote-unquote sacred and holy. Rather, I turn my attention away from the technocentric to focus on experiencing the sublime qualities of the natural world. In many ways, I find myself aligned with the artistic genre of romanticism. And again, here I find a weird kinship with Thomas Kincaid, as he aimed to present an idealized vision of the beauty he saw in the world. I also find myself a bit of an acolyte to Bob Ross, in paying homage to the universal principle of beauty. Again here, though, it helps to have been a nerd as a child and to be used to spending ample time alone, but I digress. One thing that's important to note, though, while many of my landscapes that I paint are dark, for me it's important to focus on the light emerging out of or from the darkness. In almost every painting that's heavy with blacks and deep blues, there will either be a single pinpoint of light indicating the presence of the human spirit, or the mystical orb that is the moon will occupy a portion of the sky and to me represents the divine spirit. One that tells me that none of this is random, the world that we live in, the reality we're a part of, that none of this is just by chance, and that while I might be walking alone through the world, as we all ultimately do, that none of us are truly alone, and that this very spirit that lights the moon and dictates its course across the sky is the same spirit that dictates the movements of the stars and of the sun, the seasons, and even life and death. It's the same spirit that resides in all of us and manifests as our individual souls and animates our bodies and is our consciousness. But there I go again, getting all spiritually gobbledygook and whatnot. After all, maybe the moon is just the moon, and it represents nothing more than that. But even if that's the case... I'm still in awe of its sublime beauty, as I am with the rest of nature. And at the end of the day, if all I'm accused of doing is painting a pretty picture, well, I'd be happy with that. Speaking of ethereal landscapes, there's a show on exhibit right now that I myself can't wait to see. 
It features the photographs of Jack Spencer and is on exhibit through March 13th at Douglas Flanders and Associates. I'm new to this artist, but what I've seen online has me chomping at the bit to see the work in person. You can learn more about this exhibit and get all the details such as location, hours, and contact info by visiting our good friends at MinneapolisArt.com. Along with this exhibit, MinneapolisArt.com is the most up-to-date and current resource for all things Minneapolis Arts related. They also have an essential directory of galleries linked, so you can visit all the awesomeness this city has to offer. That again is at our good friends, MPLSArt.com. While online, be sure to check out NEMA.org, where you can peruse artwork from thousands of its artist members. There's a ton of art for you to enjoy and fall in love with, and as this is Valentine's week, now is the perfect time to find a new artistic soulmate. That again is at nemaa.org. But don't log off quite yet, not before you visit northeastminneapolisartsdistrict.org. That's a mouthful to say. This is a wonderful resource for exploring everything the Minneapolis Arts District has to offer and the many programs it hosts, including a brand new exhibit at the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport. Again, that's at northeastminneapolisartsdistrict.org. And that's a wrap for this episode of Art Wonderful, coming to you from deep inside the Rogue Buddha Gallery. I want to thank you for joining me, and I hope you do so again and often. And please feel free to share this podcast with your art-loving friends. Until next time, remember, the best life is the creative life, and the best self is the artistic self. Cheers. Cheers.